0: Welcome back to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's episode, we're talking about Canada a People's History. Canada a People's History was a documentary series made by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and first aired beginning in 2000. The series is the most ambitious documentary made on Canadian history, seeking to cover Canadian history from 15,000 BC up to 1990, though a 2017 follow up episode covered the period from 1990 to 2015. The original series had 17 episodes of about an hour and 45 minutes each. The series was a great success for Canada's public broadcaster, including both English and French versions. The average viewership in the first season was over 1.5 million per episode. The numbers were even higher when including repeat broadcasts. In our episode today, we talk about the series in general, but we also focus specifically on episode 16, Years of Hope and Anger, which covers the period from 1964 to 1976. This episode focuses a great deal of attention on a growing sense of Canadian nationalism, on progress and its drawbacks, on the growth of French-Canadian nationalism and its conflicts with English Canada, and on youth activism, protest, and counterculture. To discuss all this with me, I'm joined by Hannah Cooley. Hannah is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, whose research focuses on indigenous activism on the prairies through print media in the 1960s and 70s. For those interested in such things, Hannah is also my girlfriend. We've got a fun episode today, so let's get into it. All right, I'm very excited for today's episode to be joined by a very special guest, Hannah Cooley. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lewis. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what it is you study and research in history?
1: Sure. Uh, So yeah, my name is Hannah Cooley and I am a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Toronto. My research is sort of broadly speaking about media history and the history of activism. I study newspapers produced by indigenous peoples, indigenous organizations in the 1960s and 1970s prairies to think about how sort of media production and dissemination of news products was part of activist efforts of that era. And um, spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't know you very well, I'm also your girlfriend. So yes, it's a it's a fun episode for me to be here today.
0: Yeah, very fun and a very cool research topic. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm obligated to say that. No, but it is cool. So, for today's episode, we watched an episode of Canada People's History. Specifically, we watched episode 16, which is about the years 1964 to 1976. So, right in the range that, that your research focuses on. But we'll also talk a little bit about the series in general. Canada People's History, I'm sure, Canadian listeners at least, are familiar with this series, but for people who might not be, it was a CBC television series, and probably the most ambitious documentary focusing on Canadian history. It was first aired beginning in late two thousand to early two thousand one, and it's a originally I think a, a is it a seventeen part. Something like that. Maybe it's 16 parts. Maybe no, episode... you were
1: right, 17 parts.
0: Right, okay. Yeah, each episode, I think about an hour and 45 minutes long. So there's a lot of content there. And won a bunch of awards. A few years ago, they also made an, a, a little bit of extra content to cover the period since the documentary was, was made. Sort of the, the late 90s and, and aughts, I suppose. Uh, early 2010s even. So, Canada People's History, sort of a brief introduction. This episode focusing on 1964 to 1976. There's a lot of stuff in there. A lot of the episode is focusing on an emerging Canadian nationalism, on youth protest and counterculture, on Quebec nationalism and its conflicts with Canadian nationalism. So that's sort of the, the background. There's a lot of, you know, Pierre Trudeau, René Lévesque, that sort of thing, the FLQ. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the ideas or, or implicit arguments about Canadian history that we can see in this episode? I think some, some listeners who are not historians may not think about a, a documentary like this as having an argument but historians would see it as having arguments and sort of a, a, a message about Canadian history. So what are some of those messages, do you think?
1: Well, I think some some of the themes that we see in this episode are ones that are also seen throughout the entire series, but I think some of them are particularly strong in this episode. And the one I'm thinking of first and foremost is sort of this this narrative about national unity. Obviously, as you said, you know, with with things like FL the FLQ talking about sort of like the Quebec and not the Quebec referendum yet in this series but sort of the lead up to it the growth of of Quebec sovereignty movements and Pierre Trudeau sort of as like a figurehead in in this moment there's like a really strong narrative about you know Canadian n- nationalism a united Canadian nation a bicultural or a bi- and bilingual ca- Canada this obviously wasn't yet the multicultural years of of the later Trudeau era, and I think I think this is really trying to sort of drive a point home that that the ideal Canada is a united Canada is is one single Canada and you know with one sort of agreed upon nationhood and I think this this episode in this series presents sort of the historical challenges to Canadian nationalism as or to, to the Canadian nation as threats to sort of the good of Canada. I think that's sort of an implicit thing. And and I don't think it's unique to this series, because even if you go back and look at the early, earliest episodes, you know, discussions of, of new France and of sort of French exploratory efforts, they're always sort of like, you know, it's part of the same narrative of creating the modern Canada that we have now. It's assumed that, you know, explorers who were exploring or settling on behalf of the French crown, were making Canada, which at the time obviously was not not true. They were, they were acting on behalf of the French crown, and there was no reason to assume there would be a united French and English Canada in the future. So that's one of the, I think, the big arguments. The other one that I really see across the whole series, and to an extent in this episode, but in some interesting ways not in this episode, is the March of Progress, I guess I would say, it, it's, it's very much depicted as sort of everything that has happened in Canada's past has been sort of like growing and improving towards the Canada that we now know. And I think there's a lot of sort of... Obviously, Canada is or has always been a a country built on resource extraction and sort of industrialization in the industrial era anyway. And that's, I think, a really big part of of this series is sort of depicting the resource extraction that en- enabled Canada to boom as sort of like a strong underpinning for the the modern Canada that existed when the series was being made. The slightly interesting thing about this episode is, this is also the era of the 60s and 70s when there starts to be sort of protests against environmental degradation, a growth of awareness of like climate change and that sort of thing, and some like pretty you know, you start to see these sort of like oil shortages and some of these sort of resource busts, I guess, the opposite of boom, which is sort of an interesting thing when we're thinking about this sort of march of progress narrative, but it's never really depicted as sort of a, a fallback or a faltering of Canada. Uh, it's just sort of like one notch along the trail to to, to modern resource-rich Canada.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I I think definitely this episode has some strong themes about like national unity as as the the key theme of Canadian history in this era and national unity and the the antagonists to it almost where you sort of have this stuff like the flag debate is a good example where they're like, "Oh, Canada, we have our own flag now. We truly are a nation." And then you sort of get the the FLQ stuff, and they're they're sort of portrayed as like the antagonists to that story. So I agree. Yeah, I think that's a strong theme, and the progress narrative is there. We also see in the episode some some significant, like the the costs of progress, or or that sort of thing. Like um, we there's some effort in the documentary to portray certain things as like. Vict- Victims of progress.
1: I think that's true, but I think one of the interesting things, and and this will probably come up later um, as we talk some more about some of the criticisms that people have had of this series. I think it's interesting. You're right. There are certain certain narratives of like the the victims of progress, but the victims of progress and the people who are like experiencing, you know, the like bustling. Yorkville folk scene aren't you know there n- there's no like connection between those things you know people living in urban settings there's always this like celebration of the urban bustle and that sort of thing and the victims of progress are are the people who are like you know living on the land near a you know a, an extractive a, a resource extraction enterprise and it it's, there's definitely some sort of disconnect I think between celebrating and recognizing the the drawbacks
0: it's true yeah there's the portion they're talking about this community in bc that's essentially bulldozed to build a dam and there's no connection made between who's benefiting from the the money made by the dam or the electricity and those people there's not really like there's a whole segment on like evictions of people in africville and the bulldozing of of Africville, but then there's not really any, connecting that to, to, there's almost no explanation why that happens actually in the documentary. It just sort of says like, because of progress, the mayor wanted to do this, which didn't make a lot of sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this comes back to sort of one of the challenges I think of making a sort of a, a public history TV special like this is that, you know. There's a lot to fit in in a short period of time and you want to keep you want to keep viewers engaged, right? So there's there's a lot of sort of these little vignettes that are maybe not fully explained, not really connected to other vignettes that have happened before or after. They're just sort of these standalone moments that I know, are really interesting and engaging stories. Like, you know, for example, watching Canada People's History was the first time I had ever heard about Africville. So, you know, when I was, like, younger, it wasn't something taught in our schools, probably in Nova Scotia. I would hope that that's not true. But growing up in the prairies, you know, it wasn't something we learned about. And, like, learning about that as a teenager did, like, kind of strike me and make me rethink some, some ideas about Canada and its history. So that, you know, it's good that these some of these little vignettes can be included, but you're right that they are often missing some of the the context that historians look for when they're sort of thinking about causality and and, you know, how they fit into a larger historical narrative and that sort of thing.
0: Right. So, what have been some of the responses to the series by historians? What do they think of and, you know, we can talk specifically about this episode or the series in general, what do people think about it? Do they think that this, this is good history or or what are some issues with, with Canada people's history?
1: I'm going to talk sort of generally about historians' responses to the entire series because I haven't seen any um, responses that focus specifically on this episode. I think there was sort of a flurry of writing about this series after the first season came out, so that would have been Sort of the pre-contact era up until I think about World War the First World War, and so a lot of people wrote about those those episodes, uh, and then fewer people wrote about the second season. But I think that a lot of historians had sort of a similar, or at least some of the historians I read their responses to it had a, had a some somewhat similar take on it, or a take that is quite similar to sort of my own, which is that as like a piece of popular media, TV, you know, documentary, it's very impressive and very compelling. Mm-hmm. But as sort of academic history, it it falls short in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, it was never intended to be an academic history. So you can only fault it so much for that. There's been a lot of criticism of, you know, this this celebration of expansion and progress, especially in those early, early episodes, thinking about sort of like, settlement of the West and that narrative not being particularly challenging to sort of the the mainstream interpretation of of national expansion, that sort of discounts settler colonialism. There's a sort of critique of the lack of interest in the prairies and the Atlantic region and the North. By and large, the, the main story, I would say, is quite Central Canada focused. And then these sort of vignettes pull from the West, the North, and the east to an extent but not really sort of the the main the main narrative
0: yeah it seems to me as though as we were saying a moment ago one of the key arguments of this episode that i think you could say is true of the series in general that the defining theme of the series in a way is that canada is this a fragile balance or fragile pairing of english canada in the documentary largely meaning ontario and French Canada. And so that, that leaves a little less room for other regions.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's also important to note, you know, this this is more the public reception than the reception by historians. But in English Canada, the, the series was received incredibly well. Like it had over a million viewers, you know, when it was first aired. People tended to really, really like it. And it, it rated very, very well. But in French Canada people were, like the general public, was a lot more critical of the series. And I think it was for sort of this focus on, on national unity and, and sort of downplaying of, of French-Canadian history. So, you know, the the narrative you talk about is definitely that that tenuous balance between French and English Canada, but even even focusing so closely on that wasn't able to please a good portion of the viewers.
0: Right, right. So this documentary episode first aired about 20 years ago in what ways has research on this period changed since then or what research has come out that that maybe would would change how this documentary sort of represents history
1: well i think it's i think it's important to note that even at the time that the series was made research, you know, professional academic historical research had already evolved beyond sort of the the way that this series is presented, you know, Canadian history in the, you know, towards the end of the 20th century and into the beginning of the 21st century has like famously had this this big focus on social history. And this was especially, you know, this was this was very much true in the 90s and early 2000s when this series was happening. And so you know, the the lack of attention to sort of the dynamics of, you know, race, class, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation. In the series, it certainly, you know, studies that incorporate these categories of analysis have furthered and have deepened. But even 20 years ago, there was a lot more depth and richness in, in the historical discipline than what we see in this documentary and at the same time in an older generation of Canadian historical scholarship there there was a greater focus on sort of the Canadian nation and Canadian nationalism even by the 90s and 2000s this was sort of waning this was definitely sort of a mid-century trend but it's it's the primary one you see in the in in the documentary waning by the 90s and 2000s and Continuing to wane today, it's it's not a particularly hot historical topic. Not to say that nobody does that. There are certainly some historians who continue to advocate for writing sort of the great man histories of Canada, but it's it's not a it's not a hot topic, and it's not the way the discipline is currently trending.
0: Do you think part of that is because of the fact that this is a CBC made documentary, and C- part of CBC's mandate is essentially to promote a sense of Canadian identity do you think that that filters into the documentary
1: oh certainly a hundred percent I definitely do and it's also really worth noting that the idea for the documentary was first proposed in 1995 shortly after the the very close call Quebec referendum hmm interesting I didn't know that yeah the the I was I was reading a book written by one of the producers of the documentary writing about sort of the experience of working on the series and he was very clear to say like it wasn't a direct response to the referendum but the referendum did sort of push them to action to get get the series going Hmm. so I think that that suggests a further way that ideas of Canadian unity and threats to Canadian unity sort of infiltrate every aspect of this series
0: Right. Interesting. So, as I mentioned at the top, but I'll repeat it again, this episode focuses a lot on a burgeoning Canadian nationalism, on counterculture and youth protest, especially around issues related to women's rights is, is one of the big focuses, but also environmentalism. There's a little bit of, of content about Indigenous protest, but not very much. And also on the rise of Quebec nationalism both in sort of a mainstream political way through the, the Parti Québécois, but also the FLQ. Are there some important topics that you feel like these focuses and these themes miss out on?
1: I would say, obviously, as as a historian who focuses on histories of indigenous protests, I, I think that there's a lot left out that could be added there that's really important. But I think going back to, to our uh, sort of top discussion on on national unity, I think one of the things is that a focus on Indigenous protest actions sort of implicitly undermines the idea of a Canadian nation because, you know, the, this whole, you know, thinking about a Canadian nation is built on or is is sort of threatened by the idea that this nation is a settler colonial state and that Indigenous people sort of pushing back against this settler colonial state suggests that maybe sort of this Canada we're all celebrating isn't worth celebrating in the same way. Uh, so I, I think that it's, it's understandable from the perspective of the CBC why they might not want to devote that much attention to these protests. But for me, I obviously think that they're very key elements of thinking about Canada in the 60s and 70s. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about depictions of these sort of social movements and protest movements is they're all sort of seen as very independent from each other and just sort of Mm -hmm. very isolated events when I think what we actually see looking at the history is the way that sort of indigenous people, women, environmental groups were sort of often engaging with each other, borrowing from each other, learning from each other, and also significantly borrowing and learning from American examples as well. And this is obviously a uh, very overtly Canada people's history. They don't want to be discussing the United States too much, although I think we'll see that they do in this series as well in different ways. But I think thinking about, you know, Canadian social movements outside simply the the borders of Canada and the borders of, you know, discrete moments in time, discrete movements would actually make this a lot more interesting as a conversation about these social movements. Uh, And there's lots and lots of historians who have done this work thinking about, you know, the ties between Quebec nationalism and, uh, you know, anti-colonial work in, in Africa and in the West Indies, for example, and that sort of thing. So it's not, once again, it's not uncharted waters. It's just not really the. I I think it's honestly like more complicated than a bunch of journalists would want to be presenting to a mainstream audience.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I I think the Indigenous protest story is an important one, but difficult. Like from the pers- if you're trying to tell the story about Canadian unity, that's a very that maybe CBC didn't like that one so much. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, in the future, they'll. Uh, Include that if they do another series of this sort. I also, I agree, I was going to bring up the sort of American influence one. It's telling to me that, you know, the CBC was founded almost a hundred years ago in part because people were concerned about the influence of Canadians consuming too much American media and becoming sort of Americanized. And I think that you know, so CBC has made a real point in its productions to portray Canada as its own sort of distinct entity. And I think that filters down to this documentary a little bit, where, you know, it talks about some of these movements that are very connected to movements in the United States. You know, youth counterculture, feminism, even things like the creation of suburbs and so forth. is You know, that's a common experience that's related to trends that are also happening in the United States, but they're all portrayed in like a very Canadian-centric way. There's no discussion of how this is connected to anything, not just in the U.S., but transnationally, more generally, even though in the documentary we can see some of these youth protesters have signs saying, like, solidarity with Martin Luther King Jr., or things like that. I also thought it was telling that when... The United States does come up. It's always also as an antagonist, right? It's like, Canada, very distinct from the United States because we didn't join the war in Vietnam. Or Canada, we're not happy about it when the Americans test their nuclear weapons in Alaska. Yeah, unless... right?
1: Unless it's a moment that, that that Canada or Canadians feel as if they can participate in the celebration of as well. Like the series opens with the moon landing, yeah. There was, Canadians weren't on the moon, but Canadians watched it. So, you know, it's it's part of Canada's story, you know. Uh, so I just think it's I think it's very telling or very maybe not even telling, but just kind of weird that the series opens with the moon landing, which is sort of this like quintessential moment of like American progress, American sort of national pride. And that's seen as sort of like a jumping off point for this story of Canadian national pride.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just a bit weird because you're right. In every other instance, the the documentary either makes a very concerted effort to keep anything American at an arm's distance or sort of like out and out critique it.
0: Yeah. I also thought, you know, obviously there's some issues with like regional balance in this documentary, The Prairie Provinces get like about two minutes of content in sort of, they talk about Alberta oil uh, for a couple minutes. The North gets no content. So there's some issues there. I also thought there's not very much attention to immigration in this period, despite the fact that I, you know, from what I know, this is a, a period of major change, both in terms of these large numbers of immigrants coming, but also demographically where they're coming from. It's it's quite different than sort of the early 20th century, right?
1: Mm-hmm, that's definitely true. And I think there is some discussion of that in the subsequent episode. Okay. But I think that it I think that it is telling that that discussion happens in sort of the context of of Trudeau's, you know, era of multiculturalism and sort of this this idea of uh Canada accepting so many new immigrants, opening its doors to newcomers from countries that had, you know, traditionally not been so welcoming to that sort of thing. But by sort of shifting it to only that era, to being able to discuss it in the late 70s, 80s, they're, they're I think, making a choice to not discuss in any great detail earlier waves of, of immigration that faced greater barriers, greater discrimination, you know, higher levels of of anti-immigrant sentiment in Canada. So I think that you're right that that's an important omission.
0: Let's shift a little bit, and I want to talk to you a little bit about the the making of the documentary itself. Can you tell the listeners a bit about how the series was made, and maybe how did the CBC go about researching the history that it's telling in this
1: series? So I think it's telling that information on the details of how it was researched is a little bit unclear for me there's there's not a lot of sort of detailed explanations of how it was researched obviously they did hire researchers to to be conducting this research but the the sort of main organizing group behind making this documentary were five journalists two from the cbc one from radio or two from radio canada and one who had experience in both organizations so they tried to very be very Deliberate about how they were splitting up, sort of the the head honchos of the of the production team. Of those five, just one of them, Gene Allen, uh, was a historian. He was a he's a historian and also a journalist, like a professional journalist and a a media historian.
0: I actually I have read some stuff by Gene Allen, but I didn't know he worked on it. Yeah, that, so that's cool.
1: He sure did. Okay. And in addition to Gene Allen, there was lots of historians who were consulted, and some of them, you know, like one of the main historians who was consulted and sort of gave basically he wrote an outline of what he thought the series should be um, and they didn't necessarily follow it exactly but it was sort of presented as as the outline to follow was uh, Ramsey Cook who's a very mm. well-known historian of a, of a different era he's a little bit of an of an older historian at this point but but I mean in addition to him they also they also consulted with some historians who like, I have a lot of respect for people like Veronica Strong-Boag, who is, you know, a specialist in women's and gender history, Olive Dickerson, who's sort of like a really trailblazing indigenous historian, Tina Liu. So, you know, they, they, they consulted with legit historians who I think are cool and interesting. But I think what's really important is that it was set out from the beginning that they'll sort of consult with these historians and ask their opinions. But... The historians did not have any power of veto or any sort of final say in what the history was. Mm. And the reason that the this producer gives for why they made this choice is that they understood there being two factions in Canadian history, the social history faction and the political history faction. And they didn't want either one to be able to win out. They didn't want it to be able to you know, either either camp to overpower the other, which I think is also mm. very funny, because it's called a people's history. And, you know, a people's history would imply that it is a work of social history, which it obviously is not and was on purpose, not meant to be. But I think the other the other part of this, obviously, is that, you know, the producers wouldn't want an academic to perspective to take over when the goal was really to make a popular history product. And and, and you know, a piece of journalism and media that would be consumed by a mass audience, not one that needed to meet the conventions of, of the historical discipline.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. So, do you have any comments about the documentary's importance as a piece of public history and as a media product?
1: I mean... I think it's a very impressive media product, right? Like, it it is 32 hours long. It had over a million views when it was first aired, you know? Like, trying to get that many Canadians to pay attention to something about Canadian history, it's an impressive feat to be able to achieve that with something like this. So, like, that can't be diminished at all. And obviously, like... I grew up loving Canada' people's history. I think that watching this series when I was, you know, a, a teenager is basically what made me become a historian because I, I got really enthralled in these stories, um, and I really enjoyed watching the series. So I think that, like, certainly, there's a lot to be said for the way that it can engage an audience and bring people interested in Canadian history into this into this world. One of the things that I think is interesting about the series is that I think the series is in its in in a way almost three sort of distinct media products hmm. and I think some of those are better than others and I'll explain what I mean by that because in the early episodes the episodes that focus on sort of pre-contact early contact and early settlement Obviously, there aren't photos. There aren't archival video. And so the way that the series approaches this is they use actors to sort of reenact written documents, essentially, and reenactments of, you know, events that would have happened at the time. So it's a lot more theatrical and looks a little bit less like a, a standard documentary. And I think I get the... I would say that these episodes tend towards being kind of cheesy and I think that you know probably many people would agree I'm sure there's some people who who love these episodes but I think they're yeah kind of the cheesy end of uh, Canadian history and CBC productions and then I think in the middle in the sort of World War 1 to the end of the series, to the end of the original series. You get sort of more CBC archival documents, archival video, archival photos, sound clips that are, you know, from the actual historical actors. And this is, I think, where the series really shines. I think they have a lot of really interesting finds. And I think that this is where it benefits from being a CBC production is I get the sense that they basically just went digging in the CBC archives to find the really interesting content that they could sort of share on the screen for this series. Mm-hmm. And then just recently, this last weekend, I watched the the newer, the newer episode. It's just one one episode in two parts that they did in 2017 for Canada 150. And I think this one does does a shift again where it's sort of I think they do rely on some of this archival ar- archival video and audio, but I think they also were able to just go and interview people for, for the episodes, which gives it sort of a different documentary focus than either of the other two. It makes it a little bit more, definitely a little bit more like current eventsy because it is more recent, but also I think made potentially the creators of the, of the series able to shape the narrative they were presenting a little bit more because they were able to sort of shape it from the, the point of asking the question rather than just when looking back, interpreting these sources. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, I think, you know, in some ways it's successful. I think in, you know, overall it is, it is a successful media product. In some ways, the way it's presented is more successful than others. And one thing that I think is really interesting about this series and that sort of I I thought about, but I didn't think was actually intentional was, you know, I was always like, "Uh, Canada, people's history is sort of like the Canadian equivalent equivalent of of a Ken Burns documentary of Ken Burns's The Civil War or something like that, mm-hmm. and then when reading about the creation of of this series, the Civil War actually was the sort of model for what they were building off of. Oh,
0: interesting. Yeah,
1: but I mean the main the main difference that they that they chose to sort of the the main difference they they uh, did with how it was produced was. Whereas the Civil War has a lot of these sort of talking head historians yeah. talking about their interpretations of the past. Canada People's History did not want to do that, and they wanted to make it sort of explicitly a narrative history of Canada, which I think you know makes it very interesting, but gets to another one of the sort of criticisms that historians make of this series, which is that it doesn't sort of present history as interpretations of the past, but as a linear narrative of the past. And that was, you know, a very explicit decision that the creators of the series made. And, you know, they backed away from this as as things went on. But when the series was first proposed, it was explicitly presented as the definitive history of Canada. And they shifted away from that and they started calling it a uh, People's History of Canada, you know, not, not the history of Canada. But I still think that whether or not that's the words that they chose, the way the series is presented makes it look as if it's meant to be the definitive history of Canada.
0: Definitely. I think especially when you do a documentary series that you're trying to cover all periods as well. It just feels like a project where you're like, finally, once and for all, the definitive history. Mm-hmm. We've got the, the, everything from the very start of it to the very end of it. It's all there, and sort of the vibe. So what what do you think that Canada People's History and this episode in particular do well? What do you like about it?
1: I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this series is, although there is, you know, often a, a focus on sort of, you know, some of the main political figures and and this, you know, major sort of legislation and and political power changes one of the strengths i think of this series is how they sort of engage the viewers in thinking about the histories of individual people you know they they pull these stories from people who are sort of everyday people or sort of like m- middling players in historical events that were happening and they, and they bring these personal stories in. And I think that's a really effective approach and a, a really interesting way to make people care about the history and, and feel like it's connected to them in some way. And I think that one thing they even do that I think is quite clever is they'll introduce somebody early in an episode and talk a little bit about you know the context in which they're living or, or such and such event in which they participated And then they'll move on to different topics and they'll talk about, you know, something that happened in the next 10 or 20 years. And then they'll switch to a new topic and they'll introduce a character. And it's the same character they had talked about 20 years earlier. Uh, You know, 20 years earlier, he was, he was, uh, you know, in the seminary or whatever. And then they talk about him in 20 years later as like a high school teacher or whatever. So I think that's a really interesting way to to weave people into this larger narrative and to make people care about the individual stories as they're sort of unfolding.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's done very effectively. And yeah, it's sort of a good way to illustrate what these sort of big events mean to regular people, right? And I think something like the FLQ crisis is hard to totally understand if you don't understand, like you know, what is it that people are angry about when the War Measures Act is implemented and that sort of thing, right? And so those those sorts of individual stories really flesh that out.
1: Mm-hmm. And for something like the FLQ crisis, I'm sure that this would be interpreted differently by a Quebecois audience member rather than by me. But, you know, the the story we get of the FLQ in English Canada is really that of like, a good for nothing terrorist organization, right? Like that—that's often sort of the, the 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 general point. And I think what this series can do with you know these personal stories is to get a little bit into the the you know the personal motivations of why someone is part of the FLQ. Sort of humanize what is often depicted as sort of like just sort of you know a, a whatever lawless organization. And I think, you know, obviously there's something to be said for empathy in that situation and the way that sort of it can help us understand a little bit of the motivations of people who are unlike us. The The drawback of that, of course, is that, as previously discussed, the main people in the series are, you know, white settler Canadians. So the amount of sort of diversity of perspective that we're able to see is limited by that. Hmm. So there there is potential perhaps for for greater perspective possibilities that is that is unmet in this series but I think it's at least an effective approach even if it isn't carried out as like meaningfully as it could be.
0: Right, right. I think one of the other big strengths of the documentary is the incredible theme song.
1: Oh, the music is so good. <laughs> it's so good. It gets stuck in your head forever. And it's, I mean, I think this is just part of the the series more generally is that it's like, it does make Canadian history seem really exciting. Like it's got this very intense, ominous music and this very like theatrical presentation. And it makes, yeah, it, it makes Canadian history seem like an epic saga. It's obviously on purpose, but I think the music really does play into that.
0: It's like a little, you know, it's, it can be a little disappointing. You get this, like, exciting music, and then, you know, it's setting you up for just John Diefenbaker being a grumpy old man. Yeah, com- like, nah! complaining
1: about the flag.
0: <laughs> Why don't young people today appreciate the British monarchy?
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not enough grumpy deef in this episode. That's one of my big criticisms.
1: I mean, yeah, maybe we'll have to watch the episode when, from when he was the prime minister and see if there's any, any deef gems.
0: There's, there's probably some be there's probably some good grumpy deep in there there was definitely a little bit in this with the yeah with the flag debate yeah but uh, I haven't had my my fill um, if you could change anything about the documentary series and in, in general or 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 the episode specifically what would you want to change about it particularly let's say you're yeah you're a producer on the series they'll let you change something
1: I mean I think I think there's a lot of what we've discussed that I think could be changed. I think the focus on sort of Canadian nationalism would be a lot better if it was just like tamped down a little bit, just chill that out a little bit. If there was like more diversity, both in terms of like the geography covered as well as sort of like the racial and... You know, just like the the origin of people, the, the perspectives that people are coming from. Mm-hmm. That would, you know, I think help the series out a bit. I think one of the things that I sort of think about with this series is, you know, there, there are certainly things that, that could be changed about it for like a popular media audience. And I think both of those things that I've I've brought up, you know, are important things to change. But... I think what really should be changed about this series is that I don't think it should be used as an educational tool, you know? Mm. I think we can like it and enjoy it as as a popular media product, but the way that it's been presented has all these sort of like teacher guides to go along with it. There was sort of like basically like subsidies to make it more available in school libraries and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a good teaching tool because it's presenting, like we said, this sort of like definitive linear history of Canada. And it's not really teaching students about the diversity of opinions that go into understanding histories and historical sources and historical perspectives. And maybe, you know, maybe teachers are doing some of this work in a critical way. Like, I, I'm i sure there are some teachers who, you know, are showing these videos and then doing activities to critique these perspectives presented in, in the documentary. But I think there are probably also many teachers who maybe just sort of set this up as their social studies hour yeah. to to teach their students something about Canadian history, because most, <laughs> most uh, high school students, I think, are not that interested in learning the Canadian history that they're being taught. So yeah, I think, I think if we were, you know, there are lots of things we could do to change it. If we were going to leave it as it is, which obviously we are, because we're not going back and remaking the whole series. I think the biggest change would be just to sort of accept it as, as, as popular history, not as education.
0: Yeah. I think one of the, The big challenges for a documentary series like this in terms of the public reception is that like a lot of people in the public want it to be like the definitive history of Canada. And that's also how it's promoted by the CBC because I think the public, you know, a lot of people want to be able to watch a series or something or read like a book and say they've consumed the definitive history of of that thing. And... That way of approaching history is not that helpful. Historians would say, like, this is, a, this is an interpretation of Canadian history and not one that would be what all historians would make, either. And you can still learn some stuff from it, but it's also not all of Canadian history. And you can't feel, you shouldn't necessarily feel like you know all of Canadian history after watching it. But I feel like uh, instead of maybe Canada People's History, you could call it, like, I mean, they're obviously not going to do this, but like Canada, one people's history of many. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like, or you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh,
1: and I think the other part, the other interesting part about this is that in making in making a a pub, uh, or a documentary like this for the public, you're right. They want like one simple narrative, but they also want that narrative to not be overly challenging because mm-hmm. people want to see sort of like something that they're a little bit familiar with and sort of like yeah. feel comfortable with and there was like a an anecdote in this in the book I was reading about the making of the series about how many people wrote letters to the CBC asking why they didn't put Laura Secord in the episode about the War of 1812 because people oh, really? people just like <laughs> want want the sort of little little stories that they're used to knowing about Canada and they think it's a failure of the series to not have these little stories. So like, there's obviously a lot of sort of public hurdles to overcome in in making a more critical history for the public. Because I think, and I, you know, I think if we're looking at like an American example, something like the the 1619 project shows just how that happens, you know, like it was a, a public history project that fundamentally critiqued Uh, sort of like the underpinning of the United States. And it caused a huge uproar, both among, among historians and the public, who felt like deeply unsettled by some of these claims. So I think there's a lot of pressure to make an easily palatable history, both in terms of like simplicity and narrative, but also in terms of like a comfortable story that fits into what people kind of already understand about themselves and their country.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, something like the Laura Secord story, is it, that's an interesting an- anecdote. I think it, it shows that, like, people, what people know about history is what they think is significant about history. Mm-hmm. But in reality, those aren't necessarily parallel, right? And, like, the Laura Secord story is, like, interesting, but, like, is it is it critical to understanding Canadian history as a whole? Probably not. Yeah. But people, like, know it, And they, like, know it as, like, a tidbit of Canadiana. And so they're like, of course, gotta have Laura Secord in there. How come you didn't have Laura Secord? Mm -hmm. Which is ironic because if you if everybody already knows it, then why is it important to tell it again anyway? So that's a really interesting little story. Those are all my questions for you. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about this episode before we wrap up?
1: Oh, I guess... Just one last thing that I think is very funny and was also quite frustrating about this series. I know we talked earlier about sort of the depictions of of sort of counterculture and youth culture. But one of the things I thought was really kind of just sort of irked me was the way they kept... This happened like two or three times throughout the series. They kept referring to sort of youth culture and and social protests as as young people quote doing their own thing, and it just seemed so patronizing and so sort of like belittling of of activists and of young people doing activist work. As a historian of protest, I'm just like, can't we just take take people caring about stuff seriously, instead of being like, oh, it's just the youth doing their own thing. It's a phase they'll grow out of. So that was that was one of my little complaints about the series.
0: Yeah, it felt, as a millennial, it felt like, you know, another one of these, like, oh, <laughs> these millennials, they don't know, except these aren't the millennials yeah. in the documentary. There. Ironically, aren't they like the baby yeah, boomers? Yeah, they're the baby anyway. boomers. Yeah, all these, all these boomers, like, it's just a phase. They don't, what are they doing? Like, it just feels, yeah, it did feel very patronizing. Yeah. That was a bit, a bit irritating. I think if I, if I have anything else to say about the documentary. Lots of, uh, lots of fun Pierre Trudeau and René Levesque content. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they do really, they love Pierre Trudeau in this series. And, like, obviously these two episodes are, you know, when he was, Prime Minister and when he was in the public eye, but man, they just love that Trudeau.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, where obviously Trudeau is like an important figure in Canadian history, you know, he was Prime Minister for like 16 years, and relatively recently, so people, you know, still remember him in living memory and stuff like that, you know, he did some very important stuff, so he's obviously an important figure, but I think for, some, for a series like this, he's especially interesting because he exemplifies a lot of this sort of canadian nationalism that they're maybe implicitly trying to promote not only is he a french canadian who rejects french canadian nationalism he pursues you know he he's sort of the the architect of the 1982 constitution which is not in this episode but that comes later on he is sort of he's sort of this central figure in as the one of the biggest antagonists to French-Canadian nationalism. He's prime minister during the the late 60s, which is seen as like the period of burgeoning Canadian nationalism. So I think that his significance is, obviously he is important, but he's also symbolically important.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think he's also just sort of important in thinking about like how to make a documentary like this, because obviously he was very well known for being very charismatic, yeah. making a lot of speeches that were really well regarded he was very good on camera and in interviews and that sort of thing and so that gives them a lot of sort of footage and and stuff that they can really use to good effect in this sort of series so I think I think there's a few different things that can cont- contribute to why Trudeau is sort of the sweetheart of this documentary but it's definitely worth noting that he is that that he fills that role
0: yeah definitely and Laveque is sort of like the you know, there's a lot of this 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 episode, and I'm sure the next episode is a lot of like Trudeau versus Levesque sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and it it is important to note. I don't think I I said this earlier, but it is important to note that that this series was created and broadcast in both French and English, but the narrative and the the script and the plot are identical in both languages, and they were broadcast simultaneously. So you know, the the idea was very much for like equal French and English Canada in this documentary, but like I said before, I think the way that French Canadian audiences might take some of this stuff is is very different than how English Canadians would have would have understood it. And you know, this sort of Trudeau Levesque clashing, I think, would probably be read differently seeing the French version of this series rather than the English version.
0: Or, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me about this topic is I remember when I was a teaching assistant in Calgary, uh, at the University of Calgary, and I TA'd a course on 20th century Canadian history, and a lot of students wrote term papers either about the FLQ crisis or Trudeau's national energy plan. So either it's a conflict between Trudeau and French-Canadian nationalists or a conflict between Trudeau and the Alberta oil industry. And the students are generally like from Alberta. There might be some students who are not, but like the vast majority of students there are from Alberta. And in the story, or in the histories they wrote about the October crisis, Trudeau was very like sort of the heroic character most of the time in their papers. In the papers about the national energy policy, Trudeau was really sort of the villain character. And so I feel like, It's this funny thing in Canadian history where, like, Canadian nationalism is the heroic version, unless it's coming for you, and then it's no longer the heroic version. Yeah,
1: and you also see the same thing with Trudeau and, like, the 1969 white paper, which was a topic discussed in this series, but really sort of glossed over, Yeah, and there was, you know, there was big pushback against the white paper that led to it ultimately being scrapped, but... You know, from my research studying newspapers in 1969 produced by indigenous organizations, you know, Trudeau and Chrétien, both of them together, because Chrétien was the, at that time it was called the Indian Affairs Minister. Mm-hmm. And they were both like really critiqued, really attacked, really ridiculed in the indigenous press. So another example of, of uh, you know, Trudeau is this character of the benevolent Canadian nation, benevolent Canadian nationalism, uh, sort of not holding up to some people on the ground who felt attacked by that benevolent Canadian nationalism. Hmm. Right.
0: Hannah, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Do you have anything you want people to know about? Follow you on Twitter or anything like that?
1: Uh, yeah, people can follow me on Twitter, though I'm not that interesting. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Hannah R. Cooley. And uh, yeah, that's all.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much for joining me. This was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for watching Canada People's History with me.
0: That's all for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for sticking around until the end, and thanks to Hannah for joining me. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out Mark Starowitz's book, Making History, the remarkable story behind Canada, a people's history. Starowitz was a producer on the series, so while the book doesn't get into many of the criticisms of the series that we discussed here today, it's a fascinating look at the goals and the behind-the-scenes process of the making of the documentary. Off-Campus History is on all the major podcast apps, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review or tell someone about the show. Stuff like that really helps me out. Also, I post some images related to each episode on Facebook and Instagram, so if you'd like to see those, be sure to follow the show there. If you're a fellow historian who'd like to be on the podcast, shoot me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com as I'm looking to line up future guests. I'd love to hear other people's comments on the show as well. Artwork for the podcast was made by Neth and music was made by Nella Ruiz. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for some more Off Campus History.